Good morning, Halloween. Right. Okay, good, good. I got the right title. Um, so my name is James. I actually am a member of downtown Cornerstone, and through the leadership of the church I go to, I actually got the opportunity to speak to you guys here today. And it is a huge privilege to be here because uh, while this is my first time speaking here, I actually have a, a long history with the Hallows. I almost came here, actually. Um, back when Mars Hill was uh, exploding, directed by Roland Emmerich, um, I, we, we, we were trying out a few churches and we, we came to the Hallows. And uh, at that stage of my life, I had a great experience here, but the service was at 6.30 p.m. and there was no coffee at the time. Um, and I just, I, I was just having a hard time at that time in my life. It, it wasn't you guys. It was, it was me. It was my weakness. You guys were wonderful. Uh, so I've made many friends from the Hallows Church over the last few years. And um, it, this last year, you guys were gracious enough to let us use your building when we were trying to bring a group of Afghan refugees from Abu Dhabi to Seattle. So it really is a privilege to be here with you guys today. I love you guys, and it's going to be fun to be here. Uh, so about five years ago, I was in New Zealand. And when we went to New Zealand, we got an amazing deal on a rental car there. We got this van. And this van was Japanese, but it had one floor. There was a GPS, a, a sat nav, satellite navigation system in the car that we could not turn off and was convinced it was still in Japan. More specifically, it was convinced we were about 50 miles into the sea of Japan in the water somewhere. So uh, every 15 minutes or so, it would say something like, Mizukara uh, Deru. And it's like, we don't know what that means. We don't know uh, like how to turn this off. And the GPS wasn't very, wasn't very useful. So the, the point of this illustration is that we live in God's reality. That's where we are. And if we don't have a proper, if we don't have a proper sort of understanding of that, and positioning of that, we are not going to be able to function properly, much like the Japanese GPS stuck in New Zealand. So this, this sermon is titled, and I cannot believe that George let me get away with this. It's called uh, Mary, the Whale, and the Light, which is by far the most interesting sermon title I've ever come up with. It's also a great name for a band, if anyone wants to take that. <laughs> uh, but it's not, it's, not actually, it's not actually a joke. It's, it's a summary of what we have in the text here. So I'm, I'm going to uh, jump into this, and uh, let's, let's see where this goes. So we are in, cha- in Luke chapter 11, and we're going to be reading verses 27 through 36. And this is the stage of Jesus' ministry where he's traveling around from place to place a lot, teaching people. Verse 27. As he said these things, 
a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be, uh, light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full, of, is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Lord God, thank you for sending your son in human form to teach us, to communicate with us, that you haven't left us in darkness, that you have given us your word so that we may understand what you want from us, who you've created us to be. I ask that you'd open our eyes, that you'd open our hearts to understand what you'd have from us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, first section here, this woman who sees Jesus and sort of blurts out, blessed be the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. What you have here, the problem with this woman's mindset is that it's fundamentally a magical, superstitious mindset. And you see this in most human religions. The idea is there's holiness somewhere, and if you can just get close enough to it, then you're going to be holy as well. It's, it's kind of like these sort of like magical qualities. So I, about two years ago, I was dealing with a Jordanian woman who was pretty sure that she was demon-possessed. Whether she was or not, I'm honestly not entirely sure, but I ended up visiting her in the emergency room, and she wanted to know what Christianity said about demon possession and how Jesus could help her overcome the forces of evil in her life. And I sat down and I read some of some passages from the Bible where Jesus casts out demons. And then I prayed for her and I took her to a church and I sort of explained that in order to access God, you just need to trust him. You need to trust Jesus and he will help you if you trust him. And then later on, she says, okay, I want to go to church again, but I want to learn the real prayers, the prayers with all the, like, the symbols and stuff. Because what the mindset she was in 
is, is, is a magical mindset. It's this mindset of what you touch, what you don't touch, what you're in proximity to is what gives you righteousness, that you're protected by these sort of like magical symbols. So you see this in, you see this in Islam in a lot of ways that the way they approach their scriptures is not something you read for information because you need to know the truth. It's something you recite out loud in order to sort of gain blessings from being in proximity to the words of God rather than actually having them in your heart. And this is also something you see in Roman Catholicism as well. This idea that proximity to, there are holy people out there and having proper proximity to them is what gives you your righteousness, is what gives you your hope. So we actually see this very explicitly laid out here. We have a foreshadowing of what will become Roman Catholic theology here, that somebody in the crowd sees how amazing Jesus is and assumes by virtue of being the mother of this person, Mary, Jesus's mother, must have something spectacularly unique about her in proximity to having been this close to Jesus for such a long time. But Jesus rebukes this, not because Mary isn't blessed, but because the reason Mary is blessed is different. So the idea that by virtue of being Jesus' mother, Mary has this special place in the world is actually an, is kind of an incorrect, uh, is, is not biblical thinking. Biblically, the people who are blessed are not the people with proximity to Jesus, at least in a physical sense, the people who are blessed are the people who obey him. So biblically, we see from this same gospel that Mary is a woman who heard the word of God and kept it. And she is blessed for that very reason. But that's not some magical blessing only Mary has access to that we can somehow get access to by being close to her. That's actually a blessing that you and I can participate in. So in, in, in sort of uh, Catholic thinking, you have, you have Jesus, you have Mary, you have regular Christians, and then you have saints who have this sort of extra level of holiness about them. And that's not what the Bible says. The word saint in the Bible is the sort of plurality of the word holy. And all of us as Christians who trust Jesus are called saints. We don't need any sort of special proximity to Jesus. We already have that by what he has done on the cross for us. As I was thinking about what I was going to say this morning, I mean, I didn't plan it this morning, but when I was thinking more about what I was going to say this morning, I, on my way here, I stopped at Milstead. And I know you guys have coffee, but it's Milstead. It's in the neighborhood. Uh, I was walking back to my car thinking about how all of us have this access to God, how all of us are saints. And I looked up and what do I see? I see St. James Tower. It's, 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 it's good timing, right? All of us, because that's all of us. All of us, through Jesus, if we hear his word, and we keep it, can have all the same blessings that, 
the prophets had, that Mary had, that the disciples had. And what we're going to see is that having a face-to-face interaction with Jesus does not make somebody automatically holy. Because Judas, for example, was in proximity to Jesus for three years and never believed, never had any part of that. So, so uh, holiness, blessings, don't come from these magical properties of being around Christian things or being around Jesus. They come from hearing his word and from keeping it. So in the next section of this, we see Jesus talk about the sign of Jonah. So just to, just to recap for those of you who may not know or be hazy with this, back about 800 years before this was happening, maybe 900 years, Israel had an enemy. The local superpower was a place called Assyria, which is in modern-day Iraq and Syria, and they were brutal. They had this gigantic army, and they were threatening Israel. And God calls an Israelite prophet named Jonah to go to Assyria and preach God's judgment in the city of Nineveh. Jonah is frustrated by this, and he runs in the exact opposite directions. Assyria is in the desert over the river. He flees to the sea to a place called Tarshish. While he's there, a strong wind comes. He volunteers to be thrown off the side of the boat, and then he is swallowed by a giant fish or whale. It could be either. um, And then after three days and three nights, the fish vomits Jonah out onto the beach. Then he goes back to Nineveh, and then he preaches what God has told him to preach. And much to Jonah's frustration, everybody in Nineveh believes. Everyone everyone says, oh, we're sorry. We realize we've sinned. We believe we'll follow God. And Jonah didn't want that to happen. Jonah wanted God to judge them. I kind of grew up my whole life assuming that Jonah was like scared of the people of Nineveh because they're, you know, mean. But that's not it. He, he knew that God planned to save them and he hated that. Uh, so the sign of Jonah, uh, the sign of Jonah is that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights and then, uh, and then was vomited up onto the beach. So to, to make this even more explicit, the version of this account in Matthew twelve forty, Jesus actually says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So sometimes people actually have an objection to this story. They're going to say that Jesus they're going to say that Jesus wasn't in the grave for three days and three nights, but he was actually in the time for slightly less time than that. Therefore, this has to be some sort of false prophecy. In fact, many Muslims will come and say that, well, Jonah didn't die in the belly of the fish. So the sign of Jonah is actually that Jesus Jesus actually just was in the grave, not dead for three days, and then came out of the grave. But that's like completely ridiculous because he's using this to make a point. It doesn't have to be exactly the same thing. Like 
Jesus wasn't actually in a fish either. He was in, he was in a grave. The point he's making is that he's removed from the face of the earth and then emerges to the earth and many of the Gentiles will believe in him because of what has happened. So the sign of Jonah is Jonah was in the earth, uh, basically dead. Maybe he was actually dead and then reemerged to preach and the message of, and the sign of Jonah in Jesus' life is that he is going to literally die and be buried and then come back from the dead and preach good news to the nations. So we also see in this, in this section that Jesus says that something greater than Solomon is here and something greater than Jonah is here. And that may seem mundane to us, but in the Jewish imagination, these are, this, is a, this is a big deal. Because Solomon was Israel's greatest king. Or at least under him, Israel kind of reached its peak. It was at peace, it was rich, and the nations were coming from all over to inquire of Solomon what the truth of God was. And this was the fulfillment of the promise of Israel. He said God would make them a light to the nations, and that was happening in Solomon's reign. Jonah was the same sort of thing. He was somebody who was speaking truth to the nations, to one specific nation, and they all believed. So that Jesus being is greater than Solomon, what he's saying is that he is greater than Israel's greatest king. And that is essentially a sort of veiled claim to divinity at this point because no one is greater than David and Solomon other than God himself, right? The king of Israel was the highest earthly position that a person could aspire to in that world and Jesus being greater than Solomon means he has a greater claim to kingship than the king of Israel and the only person with a greater claim to kingship than the king of Israel is God himself, Jesus being greater than Jonah is a foreshadowing of what's going to come. That many people from many nations, not just one nation, are going to come to believe in the God of Israel through the work of Jesus. And here we all are today vindicating that promise that he's made. So what you actually have here that may be easy to miss, but it's a theme all throughout the New Testament, but especially in Luke and Acts, is you have this theme of the majority of the Jewish people refusing to believe what God has given them, has shown them, and the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the outsiders, actually accepting them and believing them. And this is, a, and this is what's exactly what's happening in this passage. We have unbelieving Jews contrasted with examples of believing Gentiles. And just a quick aside here, we're not, when, we, when we talk about unbelieving Jews, this is not an anti-Semitic thing in any regard. Jesus is Jewish. All of the believers, most of the believers in the New Testament are Jewish. This is not about ethnicity or, or, or culture or heritage because, again, the believers and unbelievers are both Jews 
in the majority of the New Testament. However, this should be a warning to us that as privileged people who have gotten to grow up with and hear the truth, that we too do not become hardened and miss what God is saying, right? That's the lesson of Israel. The lesson of Israel is not that Jews are innately superior or innately inferior, but people who have all the blessings in the world, who have all the opportunity to see God at work in amazing, miraculous ways can become hardened to that miraculous if they're not watching themselves properly. So there's a warning for all of us here that we pay attention to what God is doing and don't become hardened to that and don't assume that we have God just because we have proximity to God. So this, the, the positive mindset this woman has about Mary in the, in the first section is reflected here. They think the, the assumption the Israelites have is that because they're close to the temple, because they're descended from Abraham, because they're part of the right group, that they are okay. And Jesus says, no, you're an evil generation. And that should be caution for all of us not to assume that by being in proximity to Christian things that we ourselves are Christian, that we ourselves have access to God just because we're around a lot of people who do. That's the danger that's being displayed here. So what's happening in this story is people are literally standing face to face with God and demanding signs from him, demanding that he show them more rather than embracing what's in front of them and being humble and teachable. The contrast here is the queen of the south. And Sheba is probably in Yemen, maybe maybe Ethiopia, but those two were kind of politically united at one point. And so this, so a thousand years before Jesus, this queen of the south came all the way from Yemen to Jerusalem to find the truth. So a lot of a regular question that comes up for us as Christians is, well, what about people who've never heard the gospel? What about people who have no access to Christianity? What happens to them? And I love that question because I've met so many different people from so many different places who should never have been able to hear about Christianity who have become Christians. That is like, all right, name me a country. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you someone. It's like, all right, Japan. Okay, I met, I met a guy whose grandmother became a Christian because she found a Bible in the library in Tokyo and just you know started reading it. And then um, all her family became Christians since then. All right, Somalia, the least Christian nation on earth. All right, I met a woman three years ago who had a dream where Jesus appeared to her and told her to go read the Bible. Right, it's like God's reach is never short. He can reach somebody anywhere and anywhere he wants. And if he can reach the woman living in Yemen in, in 1000 BC, he can reach anyone on the planet. Everyone, if they're willing to follow the truth, can find God if they're willing to look for him, if they're willing to be teachable. In contrast, people can be face to face with the truth. People can see miracles. People can know with certainty that God is working and still miss it. It's not about how much information you have. It's about the eyes you have to see. So 
maybe some of you today have questions. And when you see that Jesus is rebuking people for wanting a sign, perhaps that makes you nervous. But what's not happening here, this is not a rebuke against honest questions and honest examination. Because the character portrayed here, the Queen of Sheba, is somebody who came to find out the answers to her questions. God is not scared of your questions. He has answers for you. He can answer them. And you shouldn't be afraid to answer. So what we're not saying, what, God, what Jesus is not saying is, all right, just push down your questions and believe. He's not saying that at all. But there's a difference between a woman who comes halfway around the world, halfway up the world to ask questions of Solomon who wants to know the answers than people who hear the truth every day and just keep wanting more. They were, all right, prove it to me, prove it to me, prove it to me. It's about the disposition of your heart. So the problem is not that people want answers to their sincere questions. The problem here is that people are already hearing God's voice loud and clear right in front of them and they are ignoring it and they want a sign. You can't expect God to show up in your life if you are ignoring his voice. So ask your questions for sure. But if you're honest with yourself, there may be things in your life that you know that you should be doing and there's a voice inside your head saying, hey, you should be yeah, you should be doing this more. You should be doing this more. Or you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be cheating on your taxes. You shouldn't be doing this. And you're pushing it down. And you're ignoring it. And you're just doing the things you want to do. And when you hear the message of Christianity, your response is, prove it to me. God is perfectly capable of proving himself to you. But he's not going to if you're ignoring his voice. If you reject the light that you have... You can't expect to gain more. God doesn't owe you anything. God has already given you everything you need to find the truth. So another example of this is in uh, Luke 16, verse 31. There's this story of this uh, rich man, and there's this poor guy called Lazarus, and Lazarus has been suffering, and the rich guy has been ignoring him his whole life. And the story says that in Hades, the rich man is suffering, and Lazarus is in paradise. And the rich man asks that somebody be sent back to his family so that they will know the truth. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But the rich man says, no, but if someone raises from the dead, then they will believe. But Abraham says, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, then it won't matter if someone raises from the dead. When people see miracles, it doesn't actually change people's minds unless they have eyes to see the truth, unless they're operating within God's reality. Which brings us to our third point. So, the, so we have this discourse here that the, your eye is the lamp of your body. And while this isn't this is not this, this, what's happening here. This piece of text is not a direct continuation of the discourse, and the reason we know this is because in Matthew, 
this, Jesus says this in a different place. It's unconnected from this. However, it is, it is placed here because it is thematically connected to what's going on. So let's just, let's just break down the metaphor a little bit here because this, for me, is the place I felt, I probably feel, I've probably felt most lost in the New Testament. So I, I just kind of glaze past this every time I read it. And it's like, oh, what the heck does that mean? And I'm not, that's not the kind of person I am. I usually like to find out the meaning of everything. I don't like to glaze past things, not understanding them. But this is one of these that's just kind of eluded me for years. And when I find out I've got to preach on this one, it's like, ah, okay, okay, we got to deal with it. Uh, so, so let's just break down the metaphor a little bit. Uh, just kind of, let's just break it down. Let's see if we can pull apart what's actually being said here before we break down what this actually means. So... No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so those who enter may see the light. So it's important when we read verse 33, the way it's connected to the next verse is simply that he's describing the importance of light in a room or in a place, of how important it is for a room to be illuminated and the central role that light plays in everything. Then he says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. So essentially, he's comparing your body to sort of a room of some kind. And the eye is how light enters that room. Right, so you imagine, so that's the metaphor, right? Your, your body is a house. And the way that house gets lit up is by your eyes. So it's very, I think it's very uh, helpful for us to realize at this point, Jesus isn't giving like an actual optics lesson here. He's not saying that your eyes literally produce light and light everything up. He's talking in a, he's talking in a sort of in a general sense. And I think the best way to understand this is in the sort of Matthew 13 sense of seeing. So Matthew 13, 15 says, for this people's heart has, referencing Isaiah, says, for this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. So this idea is not the, is not the ability to physically see, but it's this ability to see what the truth is clearly. Right? That is what's being discussed here. And why this is important is this is actually a different conception of how the world works than the way sort of modern psychology, sort of modern spirituality, modern thought actually operates. Because if you ask um, Jung or Sigmund Freud what the light of the body is, they're actually going to see. It, they're going to think the mind is the light of the body. I think, and it's, it'd be very easy to make this kind of argument that, that your, your your mind functioning properly is the central function of how your body works, how your life operates, and what makes everything coherent and work together. And Jesus is saying, your eye 
is the life of your body, what makes everything coherent and functional and actually work together to give you a life that actually works. So the, uh, I went to a Muslim comedy show in New York about two months ago, and they, they were very frustrated with the sort of religious upbringing they, uh, they grew up in. And they basically believed the solution to all their problems were ther- was therapy. The idea is if you, if you talk about your problems enough, if you just kind of deal with all your baggage properly and you kind of dig deep enough into your own psyche with the help of someone else, then your life will function properly. Then, then you will be whole. Then you will be complete. And I don't have anything against therapy. I think it's useful in its time and place. But if counseling is done with the idea that the answer to your own problems is somewhere inside of yourself, that's fundamentally not going to work. That's fun. You, your salvation, your hope, your, the secret to your life does not actually lie within yourself. It actually lies outside of yourself. So when Jesus says the eye is the light of the body, what, what's, what's being outlined here is that what you see outside of yourself, what you're looking at, is the ultimate secret to life being, uh, is to your life working, right? So rather than finding some internal solution that fixes all your problems from the inside, looking at the God who is outside of yourself, who created you, who created your mind, that is the solution to the issues in your life. That's the solution to your brokenness, not digging back within yourself. So the mind is useful, the mind is good, but it is not the solution to these things. God is a solution to these things. And if you have a proper view of God, using your eyes to see properly, then everything else will follow suit. Everything else will work together. So I think how I've usually heard this verse sort of uh, interpreted is is in a, in, a, in a sort of like, is in a sort of traditional sense. People have used this to say, okay, well, the eye is the light of the body, and if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be unhealthy. Therefore, don't watch horror movies, watch VeggieTales. Right? Don't look at bad things, don't look at things with you know, you know, violence, and don't look at your know, unhealthy things. Look at healthy things, and then your life, then, then your eye will be healthy and your and your life will be whole. And, and there's an element of truth to that, but that's not really what this is about. This isn't really about, okay, if you, if you look at bad things, you'll be bad. And if you look at good things, you'll be good. Because we, we sit with just a few, um, like in another place, Jesus says, nothing outside of a person can make a person unclean. Evil comes out from within a person's heart. So, of course, there's wisdom in avoiding things that are going to lead you to temptation. But the the fundamental message of the Bible is not don't consume bad things, consume good things. Don't look at bad things, look at good things. So the reality is you live in a world where you will see bad things. You will see unclean things. I mean, just take a brief drive through downtown Seattle and you're going to see all sorts of uncleanness and corruption in this very city. 
And we can't live a life where we just avoid that all the time. It's, it's impossible to build this perfect Christian bubble where everything you, you encounter is going to be wholesome all the time. That's not what this is talking about. This is not about looking at good things instead of bad things. This is about looking at the good thing, having a proper view of Jesus, having a proper view of his death and resurrection. And that's what people are missing, right? The people he's talking to look at plenty of good things. They look at a beautiful temple. They look at the word of God. They look at a pure Jewish culture and they find their righteousness in that, right? They, they already look at the good things and avoid the bad things, but they're not looking at the central thing. They're not looking at the sign of Jonah because the message of Jesus is that he has lived a perfect life that we could never live. He is clean even while we are unclean. And on the cross, he took all of that upon himself and he suffered the wrath of God for our sins and then he died. And then three days later, he rose as a light to the nations to to spread goodness, cleanness, wholesomeness to everyone. So that by looking at him, we can receive goodness, we can receive health, we can receive wholeness, we can receive the blessings of God, and we can receive salvation. So if we have a central view on Jesus, if we look at Jesus, we're going to have the tools to participate in the good and to avoid the bad. But if we look at the life of Jesus, he's not somebody who lives in a bubble. Jesus is a friend of sinners, and we must be too. Jesus is interacting with the world, and we must too. We're not here because God wants us to retreat from our neighbors who are living in sin. We're here because he wants us to embrace them, to show love to them, to reflect his light to the darkness around us. That's why we're here. And if we're living in a bubble and avoiding that, we're missing the very purpose of why we're here. So how do you, so this isn't about, again, this isn't about avoiding, avoiding looking at bad things and only looking at good things. It's about looking at the good thing, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the fullness of God, and letting that be the light by which we live ourselves. And if we keep that if we keep that central, if we keep, if we keep focused on that, everything else is going to fall together. So how do, we, how do we actually do that? So first of all, he goes back to the beginning of this passage. Blessed are the word, those who hear the words of God and keep them. And this isn't, it's easy for us to, easy for us to hear this and think, okay, well, this means obeying the rules. But this is not what we're talking about. Keeping the word of God is not about keeping the rules perfectly because we can never do that. It's actually realizing our inability to keep the rules, our inability to live perfectly, and the necessity we have in trusting in God and seeing him. So the works of God, the word of God is to believe. So Mary, when God told her what was going to happen, she says she believed immediately and just asked what she's to do. And that's what God wants from us. He wants us to believe. He wants us to trust him. And if we have this living trust in him, that will illuminate everything else and guide us properly. So how do we, how do we grow that in ourselves? So God has given us the written word in scripture. 
and, and by regularly being in the scriptures, by regularly seeking to understand them, but not just seeking to understand what the Bible says, but seeking to use the Bible, the message of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the words of the Holy Spirit, to be the light which illuminates everything else in the world as well. And we use that to navigate the world that God has given us to live in. And then as, as you're doing that, it's also really important to keep, to keep asking yourself questions. Again, the message here is not, all right, God has revealed himself and your job is to shut up, stop asking questions and just believe. Um, the problem with the Jews who are listening to Jesus at this point is not that they are not asking questions. It's actually they're not asking enough questions. So often when we live in skepticism of God, it's not because we're asking too many questions. It's that all we're doing is asking questions of those things outside of ourselves. And we're not getting a realistic, honest, about, honest evaluation of our own motivations, of our own worldview, really seeking to understand, well, why do I believe what I believe? Why do I have these objections? What, what am I actually standing on to question God? Where, what are, so often... The skeptical perspective is to question everything outside yourself, but to assume the wholeness of your own position and worldview. It's like that Japanese GPS in New Zealand who is like, why are you in the water? Get back onto land. When in reality, the GPS's system is what's ultimately broken. So if our eyes are broken, if we're not seeing the world correctly, we're never going to be asking God the right questions. So what we need to do is submit our mind is to invite God to transform our mind, to renew our mind, so that we can make sure we're actually asking him the right questions, the questions about him and the questions about ourselves, and ultimately asking him and being willing for him to open our minds and transform us so that we walk with him properly.